Uh, Sherlock Holmes, I don't know if anyone likes Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch does a pretty good version of, of uh, Sherlock, I think. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is the expert in taking all the pieces of a puzzle, uh, taking them apart, putting them together and then coming to the right conclusion. He sees a man walking down the street. He, he's wearing an expensive suit with an Italian silk tie. He's got mud on his shoes. He's carrying a copy of the Times. He's wearing his watch on his right hand. Uh, Sherlock notices it all. He removes the insignificant details and he concludes that the man has recently stolen artwork to settle a gambling debt, that he's fenced the goods to a dealer in Wales and he's on his way to the, to the bookie right now. It's amazing how he does it. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, the clues to Jesus' identity are everywhere. Uh, they're everywhere. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to work it out. In fact, the smartest people don't get it at all. The leaders, the religious experts, even the Jews themselves should be the first to put the pieces together. Uh, but they're blind. They've decided that Jesus is bad news, he needs to be killed. But what about you? Can you put the pieces together? Can you work out what sort of king Jesus is? And most importantly, can you respond to him the right way? So the first piece of the puzzle, verse 1, Jesus is the Sabbath king. Uh, he and his disciples are wandering through the fields. They pick a few heads of grain, they rub the chaff off and they munch on the grain. Uh, this is fast food, Palestinian style. Uh, the problem is it's the Sabbath. Technically, the Pharisees decide it's against God's law uh, to do what they're doing. They classify it as work. Anything to do with harvesting food, preparing it, uh, counts as work for the Pharisees. Jesus says, he responds, it's not quite as obvious as they think. And he gives them two biblical examples uh, that support what the disciples are doing. Verse 3, he reminds the Pharisees of the time David and the soldiers were on the run from King Saul. Uh, they were starving and they ate some of the special reserved bread that was kept for the priests. Technically, forbidden, but it seemed like God was happy and blessed David, even though he did that because the needs of people are more important than keeping the letter of the law. Seems to be what Jesus is teaching. If it's good enough for David, it's good enough for Jesus. Here's another case, says Jesus, verse 5. Uh, speaking of the Sabbath, what about the priests themselves? They actually break the Sabbath every week, says Jesus. They work in the temple, because the needs of people are more important than keeping the letter of the law. And if it's good enough for the temple, then it's good enough for Jesus, verse 6, because he's the one who's greater than the temple, the one who came to replace the temple, to supersede it, to be the one in whom God meets his people. Well, enough said, Jesus wants to show them something, an object lesson that makes the same point. Verse 9, there's a man with a shriveled hand. And Jesus asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? According to the Pharisees, that counts as work, so their answer is no, but Jesus heals him anyway. Verse 13, the hand is as good as new, because, says Jesus, everyone who's listening wouldn't think twice about rescuing a stuck sheep on the Sabbath, and people are worth much more than sheep. So it's not difficult to see, because the needs of people are more important than keeping the letter of the law. So there's clue number one, Jesus, the Sabbath king, 
greater than the temple, the king with the authority to correctly interpret and fulfil the Old Testament law because it all points to him uh, and he, he's the one who gives it its meaning. Well, the second clue about Jesus' identity, verse 15, he's the servant king. Pharisees are plotting to kill him. Jesus heads off somewhere else. He's not interested in starting a fight. Instead, he heals all their sick. And then he warns them not to advertise it because he's not a warrior. He's no rebel leader. He's the servant king. The one Isaiah prophesied, the gentle, suffering, quiet one. He will end up victorious though, says Isaiah, but it'll be a different sort of victory. Uh, In verse 18, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Powerful people. They're often bullies. They throw their weight around, but not Jesus. Bruised reeds, smouldering wicks are his favourite. People who are broken and crushed. People who are burned out and worn down. He's gentle with tired, run-down, battered, helpless, hapless people. Do you remember what he said at the end of the previous chapter? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So if that's you, come to him the gentle servant king. Did you notice the last bit of that Isaiah quote though? Verse 21, in his name the nations will put their hope. Uh, Not just Israel, uh, but he's one for all nations. Uh, Just because he's a servant doesn't mean he's not going to build an impressive kingdom. Just because he's a servant doesn't mean he's a wimp. He's a strong king as well as a servant king. And that's the next clue we get about who Jesus is. From verse 22, uh, the people lead a demon-possessed man up to Jesus. Satan is really doing a number on this guy. He's blind and mute, which probably means deaf as well as dumb. But Jesus heals him immediately. He's restored to wholeness. And the crowd put the clues together. Verse 23, they're doing their own impression of Sherlock Holmes. Could this be the son of David? They're expecting the Messiah who'd have power to defeat evil and do miracles and Jesus is certainly doing that. The crowd is starting to get it but what about the Pharisees? Well, they don't agree. Verse 24, they reckon if demons are listening to him then it must be he's taking his orders from the prince of demons like soldiers in an army who acknowledge a senior officer. Problem is, says Jesus, verse 25, if that's the case, then they're taking orders that destroy their own defences. That's nonsense. Satan won't last long if that's what's happening. And then in verse 28, Jesus gives one of the biggest clues in the whole of Matthew. What's the purpose of his whole ministry? But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, 
There's the clue. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the correct deduction, Dr. Watson. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, what's God's kingdom? What does he mean by God's kingdom? What is it that's just arrived? Well, God's kingdom is wherever God rules. Wherever God rules is God's kingdom. Wherever he rules, in in places, in in people, in countries, in hearts, in, in minds, in marriages, in churches. And the reign of God has arrived in Jesus' ministry. And what's the clue to that conclusion? That the Spirit of God is driving out the spirits of Satan. God's kingdom is advancing. It's still advancing. God's Spirit is still at work. Verse 29, Jesus gives an illustration. If the police are going to break into the local drug dealer's house, if they're going to raid the drug dealer's house, first they have to break in, arrest and handcuff the drug dealer, and then they take away everything in evidence. If they're going to do that, the police need to be stronger than the drug dealer. Same thing with Jesus. He's the stronger man. He's the one who's breaking into Satan's house. Satan's a strong man, but he's not stronger than Jesus. Uh, Jesus is tying up the strong man. He's carrying off his possessions. He's winning souls. He's reclaiming people. That's what God's kingdom is all about. Can you see it? Are you seeing that? God's kingdom advancing against Satan's. Whether Jesus is teaching and preaching or healing or casting out demons or forgiving sins... All of it is raids uh, on Satan's house. Building the kingdom, pushing back its borders. So that's the third clue we get about Jesus. He's the strong king. Fourth clue, he's a sign-giving king. A sign-giving king. If you jump down to verse 38, the Pharisees and the teachers want Jesus to perform a sign. Apparently, healing a demon-possessed man doesn't really count or uh, healing a withered hand that doesn't count. They want something to convince them that is clearly from God. But Jesus won't play the game. Uh, Mark and Luke's Gospel say they ask for a sign to test him rather than to believe. The point is, they've already seen plenty of signs and they still won't believe. And so verse 41, Jesus says, When Jonah went to Nineveh, Even Nineveh repented at Jonah's warning. Or verse 42, when King Solomon spoke, the Queen of Sheba travelled all the way to Jerusalem to hear him. And now Jesus has come, a king greater than Solomon, a prophet greater than Jonah, and the people refused to put the clues together. They refused to listen. And so Jesus says, imagine this, the Ninevites are going to stand up on Judgment Day and say to the Israelites, you idiots, how could you have been so blind? We got it. We only had Jonah. We only had Jonah and we still repented. You guys had Jesus and you didn't repent. Verse 39, Jesus shakes his head and calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Instead of faithfully serving God, recognising Jesus, they won't believe. They just want more signs, more clues. 
And so for people like that, the only sign Jesus will perform will be the sign of Jonah. There at the end of verse 39. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so Jesus will be three days in the belly of the earth. The ultimate sign, the greatest miracle, his death, and then most importantly, his resurrection. That's the sign for people to notice. That's the clue. The clue that this king was extraordinary. A Sabbath king, a servant king, a strong king, but ultimately a king greater than Solomon, a king who could deal with death. A sign-giving king. Well, there are four clues. They're all laid out for us in the chapter. Now it's time to do some Sherlock Holmes detective work to put the clues together. What do we do with the clues? How do we respond? Well, the first conclusion is that it has to begin with the heart. It has to begin with the heart. We need to make sure we don't have a heart problem because getting our heart right is the key to responding to Jesus. In verse 33... Jesus says the sort of fruit a tree produces depend on, depends on what the tree is like. If a tree is bad, then the fruit it produces will be bad. And Jesus says it's like that with people. Verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. He's thinking back to the Pharisees who, in verse 24, accuse him of being powered by the prince of demons. That sort of speech comes from an evil heart. The key to seeing Jesus is to get your heart right and then you can respond to Jesus with the good he requires. But how do you do that? How do you get your heart right? That's a problem, isn't it? Because basically we've all got evil hearts. Our basic human nature is to do things our way rather than God's way. Our natural instinct is to build a world where I am king rather than Jesus. Where where the world revolves around what we want rather than what Jesus wants. We all do that. What we need is for Jesus to change our heart. We need Jesus to give us a new one, to give us a new orientation, a new direction, a new purpose and power and desire. We can't do it ourselves. No more than the demon-possessed man can cast the demon out of him or the shriveled hand man can make his hand better. It's got to begin with Jesus. The king with the power to do those things has the power to change your heart, to make you clean on the inside clean that lasts because if it doesn't begin with Jesus it's nothing more than a half-hearted spring clean which Jesus says in the end is worse than if you'd done nothing it's fiddling around with a few good deeds when a whole life is headed in the wrong direction it's like putting a band-aid on a broken leg I think that's what Jesus is getting at down in verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes to arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it, then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. 
Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is talking about a life that's been superficially tidied up. Some evil's been removed, but it hasn't actually been conquered. It hasn't replaced one heart with another heart. It's someone who's made some New Year's resolutions, read some books, turned over a new leaf, joined an online support group, but there's been no core heart transplant, no new heart from Jesus. It's all externals, but no internal. There's been no repentance, there's been no true cleansing, and so the change won't last. And the end result will be worse. I think we probably all know people like that. That have begun, they've looked like Christians, there's been some external changes, but in the end it hasn't stuck. Jesus says the end result's worse because now there's pride and self-righteousness involved. And I hope that's no one here. So focused on external rule-keeping, on trying to be good, that, that you're proud, that you compare your deeds to others. Jesus says that's worse than no religion at all. That's how not to respond to the king. But what clues do we get about the right way to respond? Well, all the way back up in verse 7, the Pharisees care more about rule-keeping than they do about showing mercy. And so Jesus says in verse 7, If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah, God's words to Hosea. And God's always been interested in genuine mercy that flows from a changed heart. Rule-keeping that ticks off to-do lists is not a life that God notices. Cold, calculating, self-serving religiousness is meaningless to God, worthless. God hates it. It's idolatry. And Hosea says, and Matthew quotes, and Jesus says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. God desires that you show your new heart, that you treat people with compassion and patience, that you give them your time and your attention, that you love them because God loves you and he's changed you. That's the sort of behaviour that shows you're serving your servant king, that you're imitating the king who doesn't bruise reeds or snuff out smouldering wicks. Do you offer people gentleness and compassion like that? Do you notice and move towards and have a compassion for broken, awkward people? People who soak up your time and your energy and your resources? That's what it means to follow our servant king. Well, here's another way to respond. If God is focused more on internals than externals, so should we. We need to think about our attitudes as well as our actions. 
What motivates you to do what you do? Is it appearance? Is it what others think of you? Are, are you driven by being seen to do the right thing? Or do you work for an audience of one to please God? Are you disappointed if people don't notice your contribution, if they don't thank you? Are you resentful and hurt? Or are you grateful to God for his mercy and all you do is in response to him, knowing that he sees, even if nobody else does? Mercy, not sacrifice. Internals, not externals. Those are God's priorities. Make them yours. Well, here's one final clue as to how we should respond. Right at the end of the chapter, Jesus' mother and brothers drop in to visit. When the message gets to Jesus, he says in verse 48, Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is our amazing king, our strong servant, uh, miracle-working, sign-giving king. But when we live with God's priorities first, when we do things his way rather than ours, Jesus, Jesus promises that we are his brothers and sisters. Have you thought about that? A king who's also a brother. A servant king, a humble, gentle brother king. One of my favourite scenes in the movie Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, involves the death of Boromir, played by Sean Bean. At first he refuses to recognise the right of Aragorn to, to rule him as king. He's tempted to turn away from his quest and to seek his own power and to, to use the ring. Uh, in the end he turns back, he defends the ring. He dies a hero and his final words to the rightful king, Aragorn, are these, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. That's the Christian life. It's repentance and then it's following Jesus as our brother, our captain, our king. Our servant king who doesn't break bruised reeds, who doesn't snuff out smouldering wicks, and who calls us to deal gently with people the same way. He's our strong king who's pushing back the boundaries of Satan's kingdom. And our church can be a place like that, where we see God's kingdom pushing back the boundaries. Where other people can see what God's kingdom looks like in the way we treat each other, the way we treat them, the way we follow Jesus. They can be attracted and so God's kingdom can begin to grow in them. That's what we're called to. That's how we respond to the king that we meet in these verses. Is that your declaration? I'll follow you, my brother, my captain, my king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and help us to follow him. Amen.